Section 2 of Concerning Christian Liberty by Martin Luther Translated by R. S. Grignon This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2 Concerning Christian Liberty Christian faith has appeared to many an easy thing. Nay, not a few even reckon it among the social virtues, as it were. And this they do because they have not made proof of it experimentally and have never tasted of what efficacy it is. For it is not possible for any man to write well about it, or to understand well what is rightly written, who has not at some time tasted of its spirit, under the pressure of tribulation. While he who has tasted of it, even to a very small extent, can never write, speak, think, or hear about it sufficiently. For it is a living fountain, springing up into eternal life, as Christ calls it in John 4. Now, though I cannot boast of my abundance, and though I know how poorly I am furnished, yet I hope that, after having been vexed by various temptations, I have attained some little drop of faith, and that I can speak of this matter, if not with more elegance, certainly with more solidity than those literal and too subtle disputants who have hitherto discoursed upon it, without understanding their own words that I may open then an easier way for the ignorant, for these alone I am trying to serve, I first lay down these two propositions concerning spiritual liberty and servitude. A Christian man is the most free lord of all, and subject to none. A Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, and subject to every one. Although these statements appear contradictory, yet when they are found to agree together, they will make excellently for my purpose. They are both the statements of Paul himself, who says, Though I be free from all men, yet I have made myself servant unto all. 1 Corinthians 9.19 And, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Romans 13.8 Now love is, by its own nature, dutiful and obedient to the beloved object. Thus even Christ, though Lord of all things, was yet made of a woman, made under the law, at once free and a servant, at once in the form of God and in the form of a servant. Let us examine the subject on a deeper and less simple principle. Man is composed of a twofold nature, a spiritual and a bodily. As regards the spiritual nature, which they name the soul, he is called the spiritual inward new man as regards the bodily nature which they name the flesh he is called the fleshly outward old man the apostle speaks of this though our outward man perish yet the inward man is renewed day by day second corinthians four sixteen the result of this diversity is that in the scriptures opposing statements are made concerning the same man the fact being that in the same man these two men are opposed to one another, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Galatians 5.17 We first approach the subject of the inward man, that we may see by what means a man becomes justified, free, and a true Christian, that is, a spiritual, new, and inward man. It is certain that absolutely none among outward things, under whatever name they may be reckoned, has any influence in producing Christian righteousness or liberty, nor, on the other hand, unrighteousness or slavery. This can be shown by an easy argument. 
What can it profit the soul that a body should be in good condition, free and full of life, that it should eat, drink, and act according to its pleasure, when even the most impious slaves of every kind of vice are prosperous in these matters? Again, what harm can ill health, bondage, hunger, thirst, or any other outward evil do to the soul when even the most pious of men and the freest in the purity of their conscience are harassed by these things? Neither of these states of things has to do with the liberty or the slavery of the soul. And so it will profit nothing that the body should be adorned with sacred vestments, or dwell in holy places, or be occupied in sacred offices, or pray, fast, and abstain from certain meats, or do whatever works can be done through the body and in the body. Something widely different will be necessary for the justification and liberty of the soul, since the things I have spoken of can be done by any impious person, and only hypocrites are produced by devotion to these things. On the other hand, it will not at all injure the soul that the body should be clothed in profane raiment, should dwell in profane places, should eat and drink in the ordinary fashion, should not pray aloud, and should leave undone all the things above mentioned which may be done by hypocrites. And, to cast everything aside, even speculation, meditations, and whatever things can be performed by the exertions of the soul itself are of no profit. One thing, and one alone, is necessary for life, justification, and Christian liberty, and that is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ, as he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me shall not die eternally. John 11.25 And also, If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 And, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 4. Let us therefore hold it for certain, and firmly established, that the soul can do without everything except the word of God, without which none at all of its wants are provided for. But having the word, it is rich and wants for nothing, since that is the word of life, of truth, of light, of peace, of justification, of salvation, of joy, of liberty, of wisdom, of virtue, of grace, of glory, and of every good thing. It is on this account that the prophet in a whole psalm, Psalm 119, and in many other places, sighs for and calls upon the word of God with so many groanings and words. Again, there is no more cruel stroke of the wrath of God than when he sends a famine of hearing his words, Amos 8.11, just as there is no greater favor from him than the sending forth of his word, as it is said, He sent his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destructions. Psalm 107.20 Christ was sent for no other office than that of the Word, and the order of apostles, that of bishops, and that of the whole body of the clergy, have been called and instituted for no object but the ministry of the Word. But, you will ask, what is this Word, and by what means is it to be used, since there are so many words of God? I answer, the Apostle Paul, Romans 1, explains what it is, namely, the gospel of God, concerning His Son, incarnate, suffering, risen, and glorified, through the Spirit, the Sanctifier. To preach Christ is to feed the soul, to justify it, 
to set it free and to save it, if it believes the preaching. For faith alone and the efficacious use of the word of God bring salvation. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Romans 10.9 And again, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. Romans 10.4 And the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 For the word of God cannot be received and honored by any works, but by faith alone. Hence it is clear that as the soul needs the word alone for life and justification, so it is justified by faith alone and not by any works. For if it could be justified by any other means, it would have no need of the word, nor consequently of faith. But this faith cannot consist at all with works, that is, if you imagine that you can be justified by those works, whatever they are, along with it. For this would be to halt between two opinions, to worship Baal and to kiss the hand to him, which is a very great iniquity, as Job says. Therefore, when you begin to believe, you learn at the same time that all that is in you is utterly guilty, sinful, and damnable, according to that saying, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.21 And also, there is none righteous, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.10-12 When you have learnt this, you will know that Christ is necessary for you, since he has suffered and risen again for you, that, believing on him, you might by this faith become another man, all your sins being remitted, and you being justified by the merits of another, namely, of Christ alone. Since, then, this faith can reign only in the inward man, as it is said, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, Romans 10.10, 10. and since it alone justifies, it is evident that by no outward work or labor can the inward man be at all justified, made free, and saved, and that no works whatever have any relation to him. And so, on the other hand, it is solely by impiety and incredulity of heart that he becomes guilty and a slave of sin, deserving condemnation not by any outward sin or work. Therefore the first care of every Christian ought to be to lay aside all reliance on works, and strengthen his faith alone more and more, and by it grow in the knowledge not of works, but of Christ Jesus, who has suffered and risen again for him, as Peter teaches, 1 Peter 5, when he makes no other work to be a Christian one. Thus Christ when the Jews asked him what they should do that they might work the works of God, rejected the multitude of works with which he saw that they were puffed up, and commanded them one thing only, saying, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent, for him hath God the Father sealed. John six twenty seven twenty nine. Hence, a right faith in Christ is an incomparable treasure, carrying with it universal salvation, and preserving from all evil, as it is said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16.16 16. Isaiah, looking to this treasure, predicted, The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, 
even determined, verbum abbreviatum et consumans, in the midst of the land. Isaiah 10, 22 and 23, as if he said, Faith, which is the brief and complete fulfilling of the law, will fill those who believe with such righteousness that they will need nothing else for justification. Thus, too, Paul says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Romans 10.10 10. But you ask, how it can be the fact that faith alone justifies, and affords without works so great a treasure of good things, when so many works, ceremonies, and laws are prescribed to us in the Scriptures? I answer, before all things, bear in mind what I have said, that faith alone without works justifies, sets free, and saves, as I shall show more clearly below. Meanwhile, it is to be noted that the whole scripture of God is divided into two parts, precepts and promises. The precepts certainly teach us what is good, but what they teach is not forthwith done, for they show us what we ought to do, but do not give us the power to do it. They were ordained, however, for the purpose of showing man to himself, that through them he may learn his own impotence for good, and may despair of his own strength. For this reason they are called the Old Testament, and are so. For example, thou shalt not covet, is a precept by which we are all convicted of sin, since no man can help coveting, whatever efforts to the contrary he may make. In order, therefore, that he may fulfill the precept, and not covet, he is constrained to despair of himself, and to seek elsewhere, and through another, the help which he cannot find in himself, as it is said, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Hosea 13.9 Now what is done by this one precept is done by all, for all are equally impossible of fulfillment by us. Now, when a man has, through the precepts, been taught his own impotence, and becomes anxious by what means he may satisfy the law, for the law must be satisfied, so that no jot or tittle of it may pass away, otherwise he must be hopelessly condemned, then, being truly humbled and brought to nothing in his own eyes, he finds in himself no resource for justification and salvation. Then comes in the other part of Scripture, the promises of God, which declare the glory of God, and say, If you wish to fulfill the law, and as the law requires not to covet, lo, believe in Christ, in whom are promised to you grace, justification, peace, and liberty. All these things you shall have if you believe, and shall be without them if you do not believe. For what is impossible for you by all the works of the law, which are many and yet useless, you shall fulfill in an easy and summary way through faith, because God the Father has made everything to depend on faith, so that whosoever has it has all things, and he who has it not has nothing. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. Romans 11.32 Thus the promises of God give that which the precepts exact, and fulfill what the law commands so that all is done of God alone, both the precepts and their fulfillment. He alone commands, He alone also fulfills. Hence the promises of God belong to the New Testament, nay, are the New Testament. Now, since these promises of God are words of holiness, truth, righteousness, liberty, and peace, and are full of universal goodness, 
The soul which cleaves to them with a firm faith is so united to them, nay, thoroughly absorbed by them, that it not only partakes in, but is penetrated and saturated by all their virtues. For if the touch of Christ was healing, how much more does that most tender spiritual touch, nay, absorption of the word, communicate to the soul all that belongs to the word? In this way, therefore, the soul, through faith alone, without works, is from the word of God justified, sanctified, endued with truth, peace, and liberty, and filled full with every good thing, and is truly made the child of God, as it is said, To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 From all this it is easy to understand why faith has such power, and why no good works, nor even all good works put together, can compare with it, since no work can cleave to the word of God, or be in the soul. Faith alone and the word reign in it. And such as is the word, such is the soul made by it, just as iron exposed to fire glows like fire, on account of its union with the fire. It is clear, then, that to a Christian man his faith suffices for everything, and that he has no need of works for justification. But if he has no need of works, neither has he need of the law. And if he has no need of the law, he is certainly free from the law. And the saying is true, The law is not made for a righteous man. 1 Timothy 1.9 This is that Christian liberty, our faith, the effect of which is not that we should be careless or lead a bad life, but that no one should need the law or works for justification and salvation. Let us consider this as the first virtue of faith, and let us look also to the second. This also is an office of faith, that it honors with the utmost veneration and the highest reputation him in whom it believes, inasmuch as it holds him to be truthful and worthy of belief. For there is no honor like that reputation of truth and righteousness with which we honor him in whom we believe. What higher credit can we attribute to any one? than truth and righteousness and absolute goodness. On the other hand, it is the greatest insult to brand any one with the reputation of falsehood and unrighteousness, or to suspect him of these, as we do when we disbelieve him. Thus the soul, in firmly believing the promises of God, holds him to be true and righteous, and it can attribute to God no higher glory than the credit of being so. The highest worship of God is to ascribe to him truth, righteousness, and whatever qualities we must ascribe to one in whom we believe. In doing this, the soul shows itself prepared to do his whole will. In doing this, it hallows his name, and gives itself up to be dealt with as it may please God, for it cleaves to his promises, and never doubts that he is true, just, and wise, and will do, dispose, and provide for all things in the best way. Is not such a soul, in this its faith, most obedient to God in all things? What commandment does there remain that has not been amply fulfilled by such an obedience? What fulfillment can be more full than universal obedience? Now this is not accomplished by works, but by faith alone. On the other hand, what greater rebellion, impiety, or insult to God can there be than not to believe His promises? What else is this than either to make God a liar, or to doubt His truth? that is, to attribute truth to ourselves, but to God falsehood and levity. 
In doing this, is not a man denying God and setting himself up as an idol in his own heart? What, then, can works done in such a state of impiety profit us, were they even angelic or apostolic works? Rightly hath God shut up all, not in wrath nor in lust, but in unbelief, in order that those who pretend that they are fulfilling the law by works of purity and benevolence, which are social and human virtues, may not presume that they will therefore be saved, but, being included in the sin of unbelief, may either seek mercy or be justly condemned. But when God sees that truth is ascribed to him, and that in the faith of our hearts he is honoured with all the honour of which he is worthy, then in return he honours us on account of that faith, attributing to us truth and righteousness. For faith does truth and righteousness in rendering to God what is his, and therefore in return God gives glory to our righteousness. It is true and righteous that God is true and righteous. And to confess this and ascribe these attributes to him, this it is to be true and righteous. Thus he says, Them that honour me I will honour, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 1 Samuel 2.30 And so Paul says that Abraham's faith was imputed to him for righteousness, because by it he gave glory to God, and that to us also, for the same reason, it shall be imputed for righteousness if we believe. Romans 4. The third incomparable grace of faith is this, that it unites the soul to Christ, as the wife to a husband, by which mystery, as the apostle teaches, Christ and the soul are made one flesh. Now, if they are one flesh, and if a true marriage, nay, by far the most perfect of all marriages, is accomplished between them, for human marriages are but feeble types of this one great marriage, then it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own, and whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims as his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how inestimable is the gain. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. Let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ, and grace, life, and salvation to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. For, in giving her his own body and himself, how can he but take to himself all that is hers? In this is displayed the delightful sight not only of communion, but of a prosperous warfare, of victory, salvation, and redemption. For since Christ is God and man, and is such a person as neither has sinned, nor dies, nor is condemned, nay, cannot sin, die, or be condemned, and since his righteousness, life, and salvation are invincible, eternal, and almighty, when I say such a person, by the wedding ring of faith, takes a share in the sins, death, and hell of his wife, nay, makes them his own, and deals with them no otherwise than as if they were his, and as if he himself had sinned, and when he suffers, dies, and descends to hell, that he may overcome all things, and since sin, death, and hell cannot swallow him up, they must needs be swallowed up by him in stupendous conflict. 
for his righteousness rises above the sins of all men. His life is more powerful than all death. His salvation is more conquerable than all hell. Thus the believing soul, by the pledge of its faith in Christ, becomes free from all sin, fearless of death, safe from hell, and endowed with the eternal righteousness, life, and salvation of its husband Christ. Thus he presents to himself a glorious bride, without spot or wrinkle, cleansing her with a washing of water by the word, that is, by faith in the word of life, righteousness, and salvation. Thus he betroths her unto himself, in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving-kindness, and in mercies. Hosea 2, 19 and 20. Who, then, can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of this grace? Christ, that rich and pious husband, takes as a wife a needy and impious harlot, redeeming her from all her evils and supplying her with all his good things. It is impossible now that her sins should destroy her, since they have been laid upon Christ and swallowed up in him, and since she has in her husband Christ a righteousness which she may claim as her own, and which she can set up with confidence against all her sins, against death and hell, saying, If I have sinned, my Christ in whom I believe has not sinned. All mine is his, and all his is mine, as it is written. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Canticles 2.16 This is what Paul says, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over sin and death. As he says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 1 Corinthians 15.56-57 and 57. From all this you will again understand why so much importance is attributed to faith, so that it alone can fulfill the law and justify without any works. For you see that the first commandment, which says, Thou shalt worship one God only, is fulfilled by faith alone. If you were nothing but good works, from the soles of your feet to the crown of your head, you would not be worshipping God, nor fulfilling the first commandment, since it is impossible to worship God without ascribing to Him the glory of truth and of universal goodness, as it ought in truth to be ascribed. Now this is not done by works, but only by faith of heart. It is not by working, but by believing, that we glorify God and confess Him to be true. On this ground faith alone is the righteousness of a Christian man, and the fulfilling of all the commandments. For to him who fulfills the first, the task of fulfilling all the rest is easy. Works, since they are irrational things, cannot glorify God, although they may be done to the glory of God, if faith be present. But at present we are inquiring not into the quality of the works done, but into Him who does them, who glorifies God and brings forth good works. This is faith of heart, the head and the substance of all our righteousness. Hence that is a blind and perilous doctrine which teaches that the commandments are fulfilled by works. The commandments must have been fulfilled previous to any good works, and good works follow their fulfillment, as we shall see. But that we may have a wider view of that grace which our inner man has in Christ, we must know that in the Old Testament God sanctified to himself every firstborn male. The birthright was of great value, giving a superiority over the rest, by the double honor of priesthood and kingship. 
for the first-born brother was priest and lord of all the rest. Under this figure was foreshown Christ, the true and only, first-born of God the Father and of the Virgin Mary, and a true king and priest, not in a fleshly and earthly sense. For his kingdom is not of this world, it is in heavenly and spiritual things that he reigns and acts as priest. And these are righteousness, truth, wisdom, peace, salvation, and so forth. Not but that all things, even those of earth and hell, are subject to him, for otherwise how could he defend and save us from them? But it is not in these, nor by these, that his kingdom stands. So, too, his priesthood does not consist in the outward display of vestments and gestures, as did the human priesthood of Aaron and our ecclesiastical priesthood at this day, but in spiritual things, wherein in his invisible office he intercedes for us with God in heaven, and there offers himself and performs all the duties of a priest, as Paul describes him to the Hebrews under the figure of Melchizedek. Nor does he only pray and intercede for us, he also teaches us inwardly in the Spirit, with the living teachings of his Spirit. Now these are the two special offices of a priest, as is figured to us in the case of fleshly priests, by visible prayers and sermons. As Christ by his birthright has obtained these two dignities, so he imparts and communicates them to every believer in him, under that law of matrimony of which we have spoken above by which all that is the husband's is also the wife's. Hence all we who believe on Christ are kings and priests in Christ, as it is said, Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. 1 Peter 2.9 These two things stand thus. First, as regards kingship, every Christian is by faith so exalted above all things, that in spiritual power he is completely lord of all things, so that nothing whatever can do him any hurt. Yea, all things are subject to him, and are compelled to be subservient to his salvation. Thus Paul says, All things work together for good to them who are the called. Romans 8.28 And also, whether life or death, or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's. 1 Corinthians 3, 22 and 23. Not that in the sense of corporeal power any one among Christians has been appointed to possess and rule all things, according to the mad and senseless idea of certain ecclesiastics. That is the office of kings, princes, and men upon earth, in the experience of life, we see that we are subjected to all things, and suffer many things, even death. Yea, the more of a Christian any man is, to so many the more evils, sufferings, and deaths he is subject, as we see in the first place in Christ the firstborn, and in all his holy brethren. This is a spiritual power, which rules in the midst of enemies, and is powerful in the midst of distresses. And this is nothing else than that strength is made perfect in my weakness, and that I can turn all things to the profit of my salvation, so that even the cross and death are compelled to serve me and to work together for my salvation. This is a lofty and eminent dignity, a true and almighty dominion, a spiritual empire in which there is nothing so good, nothing so bad, as not to work together for my good, 
if only I believe. And yet there is nothing of which I have need, for faith alone suffices for my salvation, unless that in it faith may exercise the power and empire of its liberty. This is the inestimable power and liberty of Christians. Nor are we only kings, and the freest of all men, but also priests for ever, a dignity far higher than kingship, because by that priesthood we are worthy to appear before God, to pray for others, and to teach one another mutually the things which are of God. For these are the duties of priests, and they cannot possibly be permitted to any unbeliever. Christ has obtained for us this favor, if we believe in him, that just as we are his brethren and co-heirs and fellow kings with him, so we should be also fellow priests with him, and venture with confidence through the spirit of faith to come into the presence of God and cry, Abba, Father, and to pray for one another, and to do all things which we see done and figured in the visible and corporeal office of priesthood. But to an unbelieving person, nothing renders service or work for good. He himself is in servitude to all things, and all things turn out for evil to him, because he uses all things in an impious way for his own advantage, and not for the glory of God. And thus he is not a priest, but a profane person, whose prayers are turned into sin, nor does he ever appear in the presence of God, because God does not hear sinners. Who then can comprehend the loftiness of that Christian dignity, which by its royal power rules over all things, even over death, life, and sin, and by its priestly glory is all-powerful with God, since God does what he himself seeks and wishes, as it is written, he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. Psalm 145, 19. This glory certainly cannot be attained by any works, but by faith only. From these considerations one may clearly see how a Christian man is free from all things, so that he needs no works in order to be justified and saved, but receives these gifts in abundance from faith alone. Nay, were he so foolish as to pretend to be justified, set free, saved, and made a Christian by means of any good work, he would immediately lose faith with all its benefits. Such folly is pettily represented in the fable where a dog, running along in the water and carrying in his mouth a real piece of meat, is deceived by the reflection of the meat in the water, and, in trying with open mouth to seize it, loses the meat and its image at the same time. Here you will ask, If all who are in the church are priests, by what character are those whom we now call priests to be distinguished from the laity? I reply, By the use of these words, priest, clergy, spiritual person, ecclesiastic, an injustice has been done, since they have been transferred from the remaining body of Christians to those few who are now, by hurtful custom, called ecclesiastics. For Holy Scripture makes no distinction between them, except that those who are now boastfully called popes, bishops, and lords, it calls ministers, servants, and stewards, who are to serve the rest in the ministry of the Word, for teaching the faith of Christ, and the liberty of believers. For though it is true that we are all equally priests, yet we cannot, nor if we could, ought we all, to minister and teach publicly. Thus Paul says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1
This bad system has now issued in such a pompous display of power and such a terrible tyranny that no earthly government can be compared to it, as if the laity were something else than Christians. Through this perversion of things it has happened that the knowledge of Christian grace, of faith, of liberty, and altogether of Christ has utterly perished, and has been succeeded by an intolerable bondage to human works and laws, and, according to the lamentations of Jeremiah, we have become the slaves of the vilest men on earth, who abuse our misery to all the disgraceful and ignominious purposes of their own will. Returning to the subject which we have begun, I think it is made clear by these considerations that it is not sufficient, nor a Christian course, to preach the works, life, and words of Christ in an historic manner, as facts which it suffices to know as an example how to frame our life, as do those who are now held the best preachers, and much less so to keep silence altogether on these things, and to teach in their stead the laws of men and the decrees of the fathers. There are now not a few persons who preach and read about Christ with the object of moving the human affections to sympathize with Christ, to indignation against the Jews, and other childish and womanish absurdities of that kind. Now preaching ought to have the object of promoting faith in him, so that he may not only be Christ, but a Christ for you and for me, and that what is said of him and what he is called may work in us. And this faith is produced and is maintained by preaching why Christ came, what he has brought us and given to us, and to what profit and advantage he is to be received. This is done when the Christian liberty which we have received from Christ is rightly taught, and we are shown in what manner all we Christians are kings and priests, and how we are lords of all things, and may be confident that whatever we do in the presence of God is pleasing and acceptable to Him. Whose heart would not rejoice in its inmost core at hearing these things? Whose heart, on receiving so great a consolation, would not become sweet with the love of Christ, a love to which it can never attain by any laws or works. Who can injure such a heart or make it afraid? If the consciousness of sin or the horror of death rush in upon it, it is prepared to hope in the Lord, and is fearless of such evils, and undisturbed until it should look down upon its enemies. For it believes that the righteousness of Christ is its own, and that its sin is no longer its own but that of Christ's. But, on account of its faith in Christ, all its sin must needs be swallowed up from before the face of the righteousness of Christ, as I have said above. It learns, too, with the Apostle, to scoff at death and sin, and to say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 For death is swallowed up in victory, not only the victory of Christ, but ours also, since by faith it becomes ours, and in it we too conquer. Let it suffice to say this concerning the inner man and its liberty, and concerning that righteousness of faith which needs neither laws nor good works. Nay, they are even hurtful to it, if any one pretends to be justified by them. End of section 2